Let me get you please to stand. And we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 27 on page 933. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy such peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this station, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the, site, in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God, toward both man and God. Now, before several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make the accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, please send your Holy Spirit upon us. Open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. 
Amen. Please be seated. You might have the Bible open in front of you. I'm going to be making frequent references to it. And I'd like you to know I'm not making it up. And uh, here it is for us all to read about two millennia after it happened. Um, I'm a history buff. Just ask my poor, long-suffering wife. I've always been a history buff. Uh, For many years, my obsession has been English and Scottish history, especially church history, from Aidan of Lindisfarne and Augustine of Canterbury to Thomas Cramner uh, of Canterbury and John Knox of Edinburgh. I I love to read about them all, the Puritans, all the Reformers. I love reading about all that. I love visiting those places, seeing those things. Pity my poor family as I have dragged them from from one end of the UK to the other over the years, uh, often visiting cemeteries. My wife teases me endlessly about my fixation on cemeteries. What can I say? I love cemeteries. I love going to old cemeteries. And uh, so that's been one of my uh, great interests. Um, Long before I was a church history nerd, however, I was a Roman history nerd. Uh, When I was in, uh, in, in younger grades, when I was in high school and junior high school, I stumbled onto Roman history through my world history class and just became fascinated by it. I I guess it was just so different from the life of a boy living out in backwoods Mississippi uh, to read about these great things and these things that happened long ago and the the battles and the personalities. Uh, It just became very, very interesting to me. Well, this morning, as we continue our study of the book of Acts, my two obsessions come together in a really interesting way. Here's church history at its most ancient, at its most foundational, coupled with Roman history at uh, a very early and very important stage in Roman history, all in a few chapters. As a matter of fact, the concluding chapters of the book of Acts are a combination of church history and Roman history. And you really are helped as you study it, if you keep both in mind. There were some amazing things that were happening at this time, both for the church in terms of what had happened in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the ministry of the church, which became uh, so important and which we read about in the book of Acts, as well as this exploding influence of the Roman Empire which had grown from being a, a regional force to an international force to what was in its day a global force, virtually unprecedented, of power and, and authority and influence uh, that shook the world of the first century AD and which still influences the world 2,000 years later. Uh, so much of our life today has been built on the foundation laid in the first century in so very many ways. So maybe bear with me a little bit as a history nerd as we look at uh, the the, uh, 24th chapter of the book of Acts. Now I I pointed out last week, I'll remind you again, the writer of the book of Acts, Luke, actually begins his gospel... Uh, the Gospel of Luke, with references to Roman history. He actually anchors the story of Jesus 
in Roman history. In Acts chapter, sorry, in Luke chapter 2, we read about the emperor Caesar Augustus. In Luke chapter 3, we read about Tiberius Caesar. And we read about Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. Of course, every Sunday school student knows the name Pontius Pilate. He's going down in history as one of the great bad guys of all human history because he was the Roman governor, the procurator, or the prelate, who was in charge of the trial of Jesus. And so uh, Pontius Pilate has gone down in history, not for being for 10 years the governor of Judea, but for being the governor who presided over the trial of Christ. Uh, We read also there about Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod's brother, Philip, the Tetrarch of Eturia and Trachinus, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Syria, not Texas. Uh, These were names which which they, they don't mean a lot to us, but in the context of world history at that time, these were people of great power and great influence. They were enormously important. And yet today we know them primarily as side characters in the unfolding history of God's work in the church. Roman history also forms the backdrop to the book of Acts, especially the the last eight chapters, beginning in Acts chapter 21 when Paul goes to Jerusalem. From Acts chapter 21 until Acts chapter 28 at the very end of Paul's life, uh, his life is intertwined with Roman history and Roman jurisprudence and Roman citizenship, as I mentioned last week. Uh, His life becomes very intertwined with all of this Roman experience. And Roman Jerusalem had actually been intertwined for centuries. Uh, Rome had come into uh, Judea and had taken control over Judea. And the immediate context of the gospel was a Jewish people aching to be free from the Roman domination they'd experienced for generations. Part of the confusion around what Jesus came into the world to do resulted from the Jewish desire, the Jewish obsession with overthrowing Roman domination. And so you can't really understand the context of Jesus' ministry or Paul's ministry without understanding the influence of Rome, the, the power of Rome. So, All that's the backdrop to uh, Acts chapter 24. And it begins with a trial. It begins, actually, with a trial and a corrupt witness. If you look at Acts 24, beginning at verse 1, it says, After five days the high priest Ananias, at this point, anybody who is familiar with first century Jewish history would have gone, Boo, hiss, because Ananias, just a few years later, was actually killed not by Roman authorities, but by Jewish mobs fed up by his corruption. Well, Ananias comes down. Jerusalem was on a hill. Caesarea was at the sea level. So you come down from Jerusalem, even though you're going north. They come to Caesarea, and he brings with him some elders and a spokesman, someone named Tertullus. 
Uh, we don't know anything else about him. Uh, what a terrible way to be remembered. He's the lawyer, if you will, or the advocate, the person who comes in. He's called an orator in some translations, a spokesman in this one. And with Tertullus, who is kind of like the paid hand who comes in to make the case before the Roman governor, uh, they lay before the governor the case against Paul. And Tertullus is the one who gives an abbreviated case here, verses 1 to 8. I want to call him a corrupt witness in this trial, and I do believe he's corrupt. Really, to know his corruption, all you have to do is compare the eight verses of, of his speech and what he has to say as a spokesman. Compare that set of lies with the account given just across the page in Acts chapter 23, verse 25, 26. <coughs> Here in chapter 23, verse 26, Claudius Lysias, another Roman, a tribune, a man of great authority in the military structure, he writes a letter in which he explains what he had found after careful investigation. He sends a report to Felix, and we don't know whether Tertullus knew about the written report or not, but if you read them side by side, it's like they're talking about two different universes. Tertullus says that Paul was trying to stir up a crowd. Lysias said that Paul had done nothing guilty that made him guilty that warranted uh, the punishment that the Jews wanted to uh, punish Paul with. Two side-by-side descriptions, one from an impartial third party, one from a corrupt paid spokesman who came in simply to say what Ananias and his henchmen wanted to say against Paul. You know, there, there's no shortage of false witnesses, and there's no shortage of people willing to say hateful things. Uh, Jesus himself experienced that when the Pharisees lined up false witnesses and lies against the Lord Jesus. And since that time, Christian after Christian, including Stephen, who was brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, he also was falsely accused of doing all kinds of things that he didn't do, stirring up rebellion uh, and, and Stephen suffered as a result of the false witness of others. And here, Paul, in that same tradition at the other end of the book of Acts, finds himself being falsely accused by the religious authorities who go and present themselves in court to make these corrupt charges. Um, well, let me tell you, it didn't end with the book of Acts. Christians today still face False charges. We still have to endure false witnesses. It's interesting to read about the Christians stuck in Afghanistan right now. Uh, one of the things that grieves me about the situation in Afghanistan is the Christians that we have left there who are exposed to uh, persecution and even death. And the, the false accusations... Every foolish thing that we have ever done in the West with our ridiculous lifestyle and the foolish things we've been guilty of in the West, all of those things are piled on our Christian friends in Afghanistan. Anything we've ever done or thought of doing, they get blamed for. And it's a, it's a grievous thing to me to imagine 
uh, Americans leaving as Christians suffer, as, our, as allies suffer, as people who risk so much to stand with us. It breaks my heart. And, and I, I, I do urge you to pray for the people of Afghanistan. Pray uh, for all the people of Afghanistan, especially uh, women and girls who are so vulnerable in that society. Pray for women and girls. And pray for our Christian friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering from false witnesses who lie about them and expose them to violence and even death. Well, that's what's happening to Paul. False, corrupt witnesses like Tertullus and and the others who are making these false charges, yelling these things, making these accusations against the apostle. And that's what's happening in verses 1 to 9. It says in verse 9, the Jews also join in the charge affirming that all these things were so. Just lie after lie after lie. Exaggeration, exaggeration, half-truth, half-truth, quarter-truth, quarter-truth. Paul endured it. Corrupt witnesses. In verse 10, the governor nods and we hear a truthful witness. And once again, Paul rehearses as he already has a couple of times. And if you compare what Paul has to say with what Claudius Lysias has to say over in chapter 23, verse 26, you find that what Paul has to say actually lines up with what the impartial person had said. It's, it's like they, they were both telling exactly the same story, slightly different perspective, but the same story. It's very clear which is the truthful witness and which is the false witness. And I want you to notice what it is Paul says about what had happened in Jerusalem. Three important things that he gives witness to. One is a continuing faith, verses 14 and 15. Second is a resurrection hope in verse 21. And finally, he gives witness to his own faith in Christ. Uh, Look at verses 14 to 15. Uh, Paul says, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Very interesting, I think, that here Paul, on charge before a secular authority, actually says he has the same faith as the faith of the Old Testament. They call it a sect. He says, no, it's the same faith. I believe in the covenant of God. I believe in the promises of the Old Testament. I think that's very important for us to know. The faith of Jesus Christ is is not, in a sense, a new thing. It's a fulfilled thing. And Paul wants the Roman authorities, and he wants us to know, that what he taught, what he preached, what he believed, was not a departure from authentic Old Testament covenant faith. It's actually the same Old Testament covenant faith now fulfilled in Christ. Anybody tries to tell you that, that, um, that there, there are two different religions There's the Old Testament religion, there's the New Testament religion, and they're sort of totally separate. And there are whole schools of thought built around this. Well, I want to affirm with the Presbyterian church historically that it's one faith. It's actually one faith. It's one covenant. It's just different 
expressions. They're different ways of God fulfilling the covenant. But it was all before Jesus pointing towards him. And now after Jesus, it's all pointing back towards him. He is the embodied covenant. He's the embodied promises of the Old Testament. All the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ, and we're still living out the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. You you can't really separate the Old Testament from the New Testament and do it in a way that's healthy. You You can understand the differences, but they're actually part of one book, one witness to Christ. And Paul gives witness to that. He's a truthful witness to the continuing faith that he shared and that you and I share. We share a continuing faith. We also share, verse 21, a resurrection hope. Paul actually says, you know, Felix, all these stories you're hearing, uh, it's clutter, it's static, it's just, it's white noise. The real issue here, Felix, centers on the resurrection. The resurrection fulfillment of the covenant that Christ is in his resurrection, our resurrection. It is with respect, he says, to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. We've already seen how the Sanhedrin erupted into confusion over the reference to the resurrection. And Paul is simply telling Felix, this this Roman governor, that that's true. That the resurrection says something about Jesus. And it was the resurrection truth about Jesus that so angered the Jewish authorities. Because it meant that Jesus was somehow this unique person in God's plan. The resurrection pointed to the deity of Jesus. And the one thing Ananias couldn't abide was the thought that Jesus Christ, who died on a cross was God himself. He couldn't abide it. Well, Paul knew that what the resurrection teaches us is who Jesus is. And Paul said, that's why I am on trial. Because I worship a resurrected Christ whose name is Jesus. Turtles actually called the Christians Nazarenes. You could just sort of back in uh, verse 5, you can see the curl of his lip. He couldn't bring himself to say Jesus' name at that point. He just calls them the sect of the Nazarenes dismissively. Well, it's not the last time Christians have been dismissed. But we are followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And we are proud and grateful to be able to say his name. Not just the city where he was raised, but to say his name, Jesus Christ. So Paul knew that the argument had to do with Christ, the resurrected Christ. And Paul knew it was his faith in Christ that had gotten him into this trouble by proclaiming Christ. Before the church had been told, you can keep doing what you're doing, just don't talk about Jesus. And Peter said, as Paul has said, I have no choice but to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the center of my life. Jesus is everything to me. And every Christian says, Amen. So you have a a corrupt witness. You have a truth witness, a a truthful witness. I want to just conclude very briefly with my sermon title. I've called it The Sad Case 
of Felix and Drusilla. We meet them in verse 22. Felix, having heard all this and having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune, we've met him before, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Here, Felix is one of the long line of Romans who actually come across pretty good compared to the Jewish religious authorities. Uh, Felix comes across pretty good. He's interested. And he actually gives instructions that, that Paul's to be given some freedom and that none of his friends are to be kept from providing him the simple things of food and comfort that make it possible for prison to not be as horrible as it could otherwise be. Uh, Felix, at this point, is standing on Roman law and Roman practice and the Roman idea of fairness. And so he gives instructions. And so uh, here at the end of verse 23, Paul's uh, being treated pretty well by Felix. Felix not, is not the worst guy in the chapter. Nowhere near Ananias. But in verse 24, we see the sad side of the story, the sad case of Felix. It says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. See, that's all Paul could talk about, faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Famous last words. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. We don't know what else they said. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by another Roman bureaucrat, Porcius Festus. We'll see him next Sunday. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Here's uh, the first of three sad cases. We're looking at one this Sunday, and then the next two Sundays we'll look at two more sad cases. All of them Romans. Drusilla was Jewish, married to Felix. And here's the, the first Roman example in the book of Acts, here in this concluding section, where a Roman has presented the gospel, he, he knows something about the way. In fact, it says he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Somehow or other, Felix has learned about the way, the, the discipleship life of following Christ in the way. Felix has uh, some level of knowledge or an accurate level of knowledge. And yet confronted with this gospel truth from a truthful witness, Felix doesn't do what Felix should have done. Not only does he not free Paul, who is obviously not guilty of the charges that the false witnesses had accused him of, but instead, Felix hoping to get money. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that a sad thing to contemplate? This man who had more money than he knew what to do with, who had more power and influence than most of us could imagine, wanted a little more. And out of his greed, out of his desire for stuff, he looked the other way. For two years, he would have Paul to come in from his prison cell and 
uh, Felix would talk to him. Maybe Drusilla was there as well. They would talk to him. They would discuss and discuss and discuss. They talked about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, things that alarmed Felix, that interested him. He would bring Felix in. Well, what missionary doesn't know that kind of response? Curiosity, interest, but nothing else. Paul deals with scholars all day, every day in the Christian world, in the secular world actually, telling them about the Christian gospel. Paul Hargrove from here at Metrocrest deals with these well-educated scholarly people. Paul, I'll wager you've had that response before. Curiosity and interest, but not a willingness to submit. Not a willingness to say, yes, Lord. Here's the first of three sad cases and. Brothers and sisters, we'll encounter sad cases like that in our life as well. We'll encounter people who hear and hear and hear and ask questions and want to discuss and debate and debate and debate and debate and never turn to Jesus. Their intellectual pride and maybe other kinds of pride, the pride of prestige, the pride of social standing, just keeps them from saying yes to Jesus, to this truthful witness Bearing faithful, truthful witness to Christ. Brace yourself for that. Don't let it surprise you. Anticipate it. Don't let it keep you from doing the ministry that God puts in front of you. There are other people. Don't allow the the one squeaky wheel to get all of your attention. Paul had no choice. He did what he could do. But if we have a choice, let's, let's be aware of the fact that there will be people like Felix, who just won't respond to the gospel. And so we move on. We don't hate them. We don't kick them or punch them in the nose. But we spiritually move on. We have a whole harvest field that God has called us to minister to.